The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Friday, March 25th, 2016 from Slate. It's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Sound a little different? It's a moving day. They're taping boxes. Alfredo and what, what's your name? Rona. Rona are taping up the boxes, taking them away. So it's a day of transitions, and uh, I gotta, I gotta tell you, I've been, I've been doing a lot. Very subtle. I, I was, uh, you know, you gotta tip the movers, which is fine. Alfredo and Rona, their, their taping skills alone are amazing, but. Just try to get guidance on how much to tip the movers. It is crazy. I went to a website and it said, you might ask, why do you tip movers? Well, you tip blackjack dealers and bartenders. They don't do as much for you. So basically, as judged against the universe of people you're tipping, yes, it makes sense to tip them. So they tried to explain why some people you tip and some people you don't. The best I could understand is people need the money. It's maybe to ensure prompt service, although we're tipping them afterwards. I mean, it's just, I guess, the decent human thing to do. But yeah, you don't tip professionals, right? They say, you know, you don't tip teachers. But that's why almost all the teachers I know when they started off did bartending jobs on the weekend so they could get a job that was tipped. Our tip, there's planet money on this. There's some good research on this. But, you know, our tip culture is totally insane. I was also quite taken in this day of transitions by the fact that Gary Shandling died. And in a lot of the tributes to him, they're talking about how he broke the fourth wall, especially with the uh, It's Gary Shandling show. And I just wanted to point out I love that show. But not only was it innovative and daring, what about the execution? The jokes themselves were amazing. Like, I remember this was after a year, uh, one of the years where there were a lot of political conventions. I don't know, maybe 2000. And uh, Leonard Smith was running for the president of the Condo Association. Proclamation for a fifth uncontested... Excusez-moi, excusez-moi. Bonjour, Jacques de Gaulle, Condo 5Z. I really like to present myself at the Honorable Office of President des Condos. Well, Jacques, it's always a pleasure to hear from the peanut gallery, but <laughs> since you're new here, you probably don't know that you can't nominate yourself. Jacques, do you so. like haggis? Yeah, I mean, we... Ah, uh, well, there's a man with taste. Hell, I'll nominate him. <laughs> hey, hell, I'll second it. And the nominating convention was just these bloviating speeches of the different buildings as they do on the convention floor. Indiana, home of the 1981 national champion Hoosiers, home of the third largest smelt refinery, you know, when they were doing it in its Gary Shandling show. Building 7, home of fine greenery and excellent lobby. I love that show. Gary Shandling will be missed. On the show today, our show today... A moving day. What we did is we went long with a Chris Malamphy interview. The year was 1999. I was skeptical of the quality of the music at first, but Chris Malamphy, you give him enough time, the guy will win you over. There are two tragic things about the number one singles of 1999. One is that Prince's 1999 wasn't one of them. 
The other tragic thing about the number one singles in 1999 is, my opinion, just my opinion, they're all pretty terrible. I don't know that they're all terrible. I, I, I look so forward to my talks with Chris, where we get to go down memory lane of these songs that I loved. And there weren't too many songs I loved. But anyway, Chris Malamphy is here. He writes the Why Is That Song number one column for Slate magazine. And we do this thing where we talk about the number one singles of a year, 1999. Dearly beloved, we're gathered here today. Hello, Chris. How are you? Hi, Mike. How are you? I'm, I'm pretty good. A lot of angels dominating the beginning of the year. Yeah. R. Kelly and Celine with I'm Your Angel and then Monica with Angel of Mine. I, I think Touched by an Angel was still on CBS at the time. So, right. you know, m- maybe that was a factor. And, and wasn't there the song, uh, How Do You Talk to an Angel? Yes, Look that was that a 92 up. hit, so oh, that's, okay. quite, that's quite a ways in the past. But, <laughs> yeah. but uh, and They never really answered it. Yeah. The 90s were an, an angel decade in general. <laughs> yeah, the very first number one hit of the year is this largely forgotten duet between Celine Dion and R. Kelly. How's yes. that for pairings? Yeah. Well, I, uh, I can't see them dating in real life. But okay. No, an R. Kelly composition recorded with Celine Dion. Uh, it spends a couple of weeks at the end of 98 at number one and then a couple more weeks at ni- in 99 at number one. You know, this is R. Kelly's, let's call it, inspirational ballad period. I mean, after he did I Believe I Can Fly in 1996, he was kind of in that mode for several years. And that's probably the template they were, you know, emulating here. Basically, what's going on is it's B minus R. Kelly. It's maybe... B plus Celine Dion, somewhere in there. But you add them together, people want to listen to this song, I guess. I guess, yeah. Yeah. And the other Angel song, Monica, who's huge, although she hasn't done much lately. The song that you can compare the Monica song to is actually Have You Ever, uh, another number one hit from this year by uh, Brandy. Brandy and Monica in 1998 had the biggest uh, song of the summer, uh, a song called The Boy Is Mine, which was a duet between the two of them. And it was kind of a, a meeting of the young 90s R&B divas. They, yeah. they were both hit creators in their teenage years. Yeah. They were paired together for this enormous hit that spent like more than a dozen weeks at number one. And then they each scored kind of afterburner number one hits. Monica arguably had had the bigger streak. This was her third consecutive number one hit. She had a late 98 number one hit called The First Night. And then she comes back with Angel of Mine, which is uh, a ballad that had actually been kicking around for a while. It actually was a, a number four hit first in the United Kingdom for a, a British R&B group called Eternal. They took it all the way into the top five in the, the UK charts. But uh, it was the Monica cover that uh, went all the way to number one in America and was the big hit. When I first saw you, I already knew There was something inside of you Something I thought that I would never find 
because back then it would seem like, well, who's going to be the dominant pop star of the next decade, either Brandy or Monica? Sure, there's this group named Destiny's Child, and they had a number one with Bills, 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 but I don't think Beyonce was a household name, let alone a breakout star from the Destiny's Child juggernaut then. Not yet, but the wheels were in motion to turn Beyonce into the uh, demigod that we now know. Mm -hmm. In fact, uh, what's interesting about Bills, 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 the number one hit uh, by Destiny's Child in the summer of 99 is it is the first number one for the group and it is the last for two members of the group. Uh, Lativia Roberson and Latoya Luckett were the two unlucky Destiny's Child members who Unlu- were... Unlucky, if you will. Yes, indeed. Were uh, unlucky enough to be uh, booted from the group by uh, manager Matthew Knowles, Beyonce's dad, as of the end of 1999. So they were only around for the group's early hit from 1997, uh, No, No, No. They were around for their other triple-named hit, Bills, Bills, Bills. And then by the end of 1999, they, they were, were done, done, done. They were done, <laughs> done, done. <laughs> If we're talking R&B trios, let's talk TLC. This is about five years after their gigantic song, which told us not to go chasing waterfalls. 1999 is a big year for TLC. They uh, came back from a roughly four-year hiatus after that album that had waterfalls on it called Crazy Sexy Cool, one of the best-selling albums of the 90s. It sold about 10 million copies. And uh, they come back with an album called Fan Mail, which generates two number one hits. Arguably, the the better remembered of the two, although I actually do like them both, is uh, No Scrubs, which uh, immortalized the the line, I don't want no scrubs, a scrub as a guy. I love I love in any song where they define the word for you yeah. straight away. Yeah. It's it's as if they've cracked open their, you know, urban dictionary and yeah. they're just reading it to you, you know. I don't want no scrubs. I don't, I don't want no scrub. A scrub is a guy who, who don't get no love from me. It's a little like in a dance song where you say you just take your hands and you know right. It's like it's the the hokey pokey of defining no good men, basically. (laughs) Um, So no scrubs is is a pretty immortal number one hit. And then yeah, as you point out later in the year, they have uh, their second number one hit with unpretty, which is fairly early in the sort of teen it gets better no body shaming movement. It's basically uh, talking about how uh, you know young people can be the cruelest to themselves, and and it you know uh, strongly hints at things like eating disorders and and other uh, maladies that plague young people in their quest to feel pretty. Here's a fact in quotes that I saw on Wikipedia. Is this true? Having sold over 65 million records worldwide, TLC is the best-selling American girl group of all time. Yeah. The Supremes? Yeah. Bigger than the Supremes? Well, for the simple reason that they had the the fortune to peak in the 90s, which is also the peak for the record industry in general, album sales. In the 1960s, when the Supremes were in their heyday, the record industry still pretty much revolved around the single. The single, you know, outsold the album pretty much until albums like Pet Sounds and Sgt. 
Pepper come along and start to change the model and the core unit of music uh, is is the album, uh, singles were the bigger medium. Oh, so when they say best-selling... Girl group. Girl group. American girl only group. by records? They don't count all the singles? They sold? probably count the singles too, oh, but wow. you're, st- you're still talking about, you know, a typical Supreme song selling one or two million singles, whereas, again, Crazy Sexy Cool by TLC, their mid-90s album that had Waterfalls and Creep on it, sold 10 million copies. That kind of tonnage was not typically shifted by albums in the 60s. A scrub is a guy that thinks he's flying this Also known as a buster Always talking about what he wants And just sits on his broke ass So don't I don't want your number If you take the average age of everybody who had a number one hit this year, the average is 28 years old. That's pretty up the middle for the music business. But the median... Right. So, well, (laughs) here's what I did. If you back out the two oldest number one hit getters, and I'll talk about both of them in a minute. If you back the two of them out, the, the average age drops to 24 years. Yeah. It was a year mostly of very young number one hit makers. So we're talking Britney Spears at age 17. We're talking Christina Aguilera at 18. We're talking, uh, you know, Brandy at 19. We're talking Monica at 18. You know, e- even the, the the people in their 20s were still relatively young in their 20s. Uh, you know, Beyonce's not out of her teenage years yet. Uh, Ricky Martin's 27. On the whole, this is what I consider the total request live year. Do you remember? Wow. TRL, Mike? Sure, you stand outside the Times Square studio and you yell and maybe uh, Carson... Uh, Daly. Carson Daly. I was going to say Carson Palmer. But sure, Carson Daly decides right. to play the song. So so TRL was in its absolute peak in 1999, and yes. it, bo- both as a, as a television phenomenon and as an influence on the charts. Thank you, because I'm looking at these songs like, why do I hate them? Because I wasn't a 19-year-old... Sorry, I wasn't a 14-year-old girl in 1999. You mean you weren't That's standing out in... those songs. You yes. mean you weren't standing out in Times Square and that screaming your correct. head off. You know, it was the American bandstand of uh, the, you know, rising Gen Y. Uh, and uh, basically, you you could tune in every afternoon just after school let out, get a, you know, hormonal blast of, you know, the acts that a new generation were all obsessed over. So that included uh, all of the teen pop we're looking at here. It included Britney Spears. It included Christina Aguilera. It included the Backstreet Boys, who had the number one album of 1999, Millennium, with its immortal hit, I Want It That Way. These were uh, the gods and goddesses for this generation. It also included a lot of the Latin pop that we mm-hmm. see on this chart. Uh, 1999 was the year of the so-called Latin pop explosion, which frankly was about a mile wide and an inch deep. But it, it was an interesting, odd phenomenon that all of these uh, Latin pop stars broke at roughly the same time. we're talking Ricky Martin, Living La Vida Loco. Enrique Iglesias. Really, if you want to track the Latin pop explosion of 1999, you have to start at that year's Grammy Awards back in February. The artist who uh, stole the awards, arguably, uh, was Ricky Martin. To that point, at the beginning of 1999, Ricky Martin was exclusively a Latin pop star. He sang in Spanish. He had already scored a couple of platinum Latin pop albums. He had even recorded, you'll like this, Mike, the official FIFA anthem of the 1998 World Cup, a song called La Copa de la Vida, The Cup of Life. And he performed that song, La Copa de la Vida, on the uh, 1999 Grammy Awards. With um, Sepp Blatter sitting on his lap. I'm sure. Um, no, it was a 
very lively performance with circus acts behind him and, and Ricky just exuding charisma. Nobody went into the 1999 Grammys thinking that Ricky Martin, who, by the way, was only up for Latin pop album of the year, not exactly a frontline award of the, the Anglo Grammys, mm-hmm. but he stole the entire show and he hadn't even released an English language album yet. So a couple months later, he drops his first English language single, Live in La Vida Loca, written by, among others, Desmond Child, late of Bon Jovi and Aerosmith in the 80s. He'd written all those hits for them. Scores an absolutely explosive album in English, absolutely explosive single in English, and basically then sets the tone for the rest of the year. In Ricky's way comes Enrique Iglesias, uh, Jennifer Lopez, however, you know, meager her Latin pop credentials. want to talk about the last song we haven't really talked about in depth, which could be, I don't know if it's the biggest song, but it led to a trend that would not die. Now it's abating. Believe by Cher, Fine Tune. This was where I first clearly heard the thing that became known as auto-tune. Yes. It is difficult to overstate, however, whatever you think of the song Believe, it is difficult to overstate what a large footprint this song had and what a large shadow it cast. This is not the first hit song to feature a manipulated voice, certainly. Famously in the 80s, the R&B funk uh, pioneer uh, Roger Troutman of Zap had uh, used the vocoder to uh, treat his vocals and as late as 1996, he scored a hit California Love with Tupac using the vocoder effect on his vocals. Auto-Tune is a software program. It's it's not a device exactly. Auto-Tune had been used for years to do what its name suggests, to silently, in the background, fix the pitch of singers' vocals. It had never really been used on a pop hit in an obvious way to bend or otherwise manipulate the lead singer's vocals. The legend goes that when uh, the producers of Believe, a guy named Mark Taylor and another guy named uh, Brian Rawling, were playing with uh, the Cher recording, they were messing about with Cher's vocals on autotune, and that's when that bend in her vocal suddenly materialized. It was an accident, and they liked it, but they were terrified to play it for Cher. Reportedly, they played it for Cher. Cher loved it. And when Warner Brothers Records came back and said, I don't know, guys, that's a little strange, Cher said, you'll take it out over my dead body. And so that's how they released the record, and it wound up being the number one song of 1999. Yes, in the year of teen pop, 
the number one song of the year was by a 52-year-old woman. That's still a record. She still holds the record for really? the number one hit, oldest uh, oh. woman to score a number one hit. And uh, it was number one hit of the year, and uh, it changed the sound of pop. Within a year, uh, Faith Hill was recording uh, the song The Way You Love Me using the same auto-tune effect. In less than a decade, you've got T-Pain changing the sound of hip-hop using auto-tune. Got the body of a goddess, got eyes but a big and brown, I see you, girl. Coming down from the ceiling. Yeah, Believe, whatever you think of it as a pop ditty, is an extremely influential number one hit. So, okay, let's go back to the very first thing I was saying, which was to denigrate this year. Hey, they're doing a lot better than I could. But what's the case? What's the case for its importance? What's the case for its artistic value? What's the case for 1999? The case for 1999 is that uh, this is, you know, American-led pop at its absolute apex. This is the height of the Clinton era writ large in pop music. It's Empire America at its peak, very candy-colored, very Total Request Live, very Britney Spears' Baby One More Time, even if that song was recorded in Sweden with Max Martin. By the way, Max Martin's first number one hit. And surprisingly, a lot of the artists who were hits in this TRL era of pop have proved quite enduring. I mean, Britney Spears, up until quite recently, was still scoring number one hits. Backstreet Boys are still touring. Christina Aguilera is still on The Voice. You know, uh, NSYNC, who had more hits this year and continue to have even bigger hits in 2000. They spawned Justin Timberlake's career. There's a sense that, you know, you're at the the tail end of something, but also at the beginning of something. It's leading into, you know, what various strains of electronic pop were going to sound like in the 2000s. If the first half of the 1990s was all about rather grim face music, it was about grunge, it was about gangster rap, this is the candy-colored half of the 1990s. This is the Clinton expanded economy. This is the internet. This is the years of peace and prosperity. This is the pre-9-11, pre-wake-up call, good time. If you watch that year's um, VMAs, the Video Music Awards on MTV. Here they are, the beautiful Backstreet Boys. All of the artists that you see on this list of number ones are there. Britney Spears is there. Christina Aguilera is there. The Backstreet Boys are there. And, you know, all the Latin pop stars. uh, Ricky Martin is there. Uh, He's being made fun of by Chris Rock. God, man, he need another hit real bad. Ricky need another hit bad. He need another hit like a crackhead need a hit. You see a culture that feels like the good times are going to last forever. The dot-com era is at its height. Clinton's in the White House. Uh, unemployment's at 5%. Everybody's got money to burn. And, you know, the good times are here again. We know what happened two years later, but 1999 is a very neon-colored, bright and shiny year. And for that, I don't know, I have an odd sort of nostalgia for it. I want it that way Cause I want it 
Chris Malamphy, who writes the Why Is This Song number one column for Slate and does this thing with us. Thank you, Chris. Thank you, Mike. That's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi's favorite tip is 15%. Also, Tip O'Neill, who said, all politics is local. I always thought it should be R. Executive producer of Slate Podcast, Steve Lichtai. His favorite tip is 17.5%. Also, fingertips by Stevie Wonder. Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of the Panoply Network. And his tip is never play poker with a person named after a city. The gist, our tip, is get plenty of quotes from the movie Teen Wolf. You can't go wrong. Umpru Depru Dupru. New shows on Monday. New studios on Monday. Take a tip from me. It's going to be good. Thanks for listening. <laughs>